Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. This is the first episode in our Classroom Setup blog series. So I've kind of coined this seven steps term only because I am such a checklist person and I love a numbered to-do list because the classroom setup process is super overwhelming that we need a checklist or a numbered bulleted list to guide us through that process. And when I say classroom setup process, I don't mean for first-year teachers. I mean every special ed teacher every year. Because the needs of our kids change so much year to year, that classroom setup process is going to be just as cumbersome and important as it was your very first year teaching as it is today, even if it's your 10th year teaching. So this first episode is going to be step one. And step one, we're not even moving around furniture yet. We're not laminating, don't pull out your Velcro quite yet. Step one is organization and planning. Because the setup process is so important, you just can't jump right in. You have to think about the choices you're making and why you're setting up your classroom or utilizing your materials or your staff in a certain way and really spending the time thinking about it is important. And I include this as step one on purpose. This could be presumed, this could be like a pre-step that we could just, you know, kind of assume that everyone does this. But the fact of the matter is we don't. 
And we're all creatures of habit. You might just go set up your classroom the exact same way you did last year. Like, okay, this is where I put my schedules. This is where I put my morning time. This is where I put my desk. But if you don't take the time to think about, you know, what worked last year, what didn't work, you know, last year, what new kids are coming to me, how have the needs of my students changed, you're never going to improve on that overall setup. And it's really important Our classrooms look different because our kids are different. If you are in a self-contained classroom, you might have a very, very wide range of needs in your room. You might be teaching pronouns and potty training in the same few minutes. You have to write a lesson plan that includes differentiating for kids that aren't yet able to talk and other kids that just don't stop talking. So because we have such a wide range of needs, our classrooms might look very different than the classrooms in your hallway. And your classroom should look very different year to year. And I want to really stress this point. I quote Dr. Stephen Shore in almost all of my PDs. He says, if you've met one individual with autism, you've met one individual with autism. And I know you're all nodding as you hear that because our kids are all so different and the needs of our kids are all going to be so different. And even if you have the exact same group of kids that you did last year, the needs are going to change. They're a year older. They might've learned a whole new set of things in summer camp and they're going to storm in in August ready to rage and you have to be ready. And you should also continuously be changing your classroom because as their needs change, you want to meet them where they're at, continue to challenge them, continue to provide them new opportunities. Many of us have students in our classroom for three or four years. That doesn't mean they get just the exact same thing for three or four years. They're there for three or four years with you because that might be how long it takes you to really get to know them. And once you get to know them, you want to kind of maintain that momentum and keep going. So this classroom is evolving. If things are looking the same way year after year after year, this step one is where you need to live. You need to really evaluate why things are set up the way they are, how you can up the ante, how you can raise expectations, how you can increase opportunities for independence or increase the way that you're using your staff more. There is always ways to improve. Your classroom will never be perfect, but your goal is to make it better than last year. You're not striving for perfection. You're just aiming for better. So we're on step one. Step one is organization and planning. So we have seven steps for setting up a stellar classroom. In this step one, we're going to talk about brainstorming and getting ready for all of the other steps. As we go through the next podcast episodes that talk about schedules and visuals and things like that, this step is important because this is your foundation. So after you go through all of the other episodes in this series, this might be a good one to come back to and review again. This brainstorming process should be active. Don't think about it in the commercial breaks of your favorite Bravo show. Really dedicate some time to sit down with pen and paper. Take notes. I am an active planner. I am all about 
writing notes, writing checklists, writing to-do lists, writing outlines. Get your ideas down. Even if you look back at those ideas in a week and you think those are weird, at least you have a starting off point. So make this step one active. So that means get out a pen and paper and we're going to start to go through this brainstorming planning process together. So there's three things I want to talk about. I want to talk about reviewing the needs of your students. The second thing we're going to talk about are some brainstorming questions about the overall kind of status of your classroom. And the third is starting to create a list of centers. If you are a brand new teacher or you are at a brand new building that you've never been to before, you might not know all of this information yet. And that's okay, but it's good to start to realize what you don't know so you know what information to seek out right away. So first up, no surprise, it starts with the kids. Your classroom is set up around the needs of your students. So of course we wanna know what the needs of our students are. So I know I have a lot of different types of people listening. If you are a teacher and you have the same kids maybe that you had last year, you know most of your kids, don't fly over this step being like, oh yeah, I know my kids, of course. Spend some time here because you might have some kind of preconceived notions about some of your students or you might be thinking about where they were a year ago, not how far they came in the last year. Maybe you will have some new students coming up to your classroom or you're going to a new building or a new position where you don't know the students yet. Whatever situation you're in, spend some time reviewing the IEPs. I know that doesn't sound glamorous, that doesn't sound fun, but you can do it with a Diet Coke or maybe a glass of wine. You don't have to tell anyone. Review those IEPs and take some notes. You want to make a working document for yourself. Those IEPs are long and they're complicated and there's a lot of extra language in there that's hard to get to the meat and potatoes of what that child needs and what that child's strengths are. So go through and take some notes about each child. And in non-IEP English, so just quick and dirty, make a list of what their IEP goals are. So on your paper, Johnny, these six IEP goals and a few other notes about his strengths or current skill set. Sarah, quick IEP list, then having those strengths, other needs, anything else that is important, some major notes from the behavior plan. Try to get this to fit on one or two pages. The point is to not have this super detailed list with mastery criteria and all of this. It's just to have a quick view of the needs of each child. So you could glance and start to identify what skills each student is working on and what things they need from you and the classroom. Once you have this list, start to make a rough draft of different ways that you can work on each of these IEP goals. So where we wrote down Johnny's name and then the quick list of his IEP goals right next to that, put some ways that you can work on that IEP goal. If Johnny has an IEP goal to participate in group activities, well, great. A morning meeting would be awesome for him. A group read aloud, cooking, social skills group. There's lots of ways you can work on that. So add a few bullet points after each IEP goal of if it's something that's more direct instruction focused, something more group focused, or some different ways you can work on each IEP goal, because this is going to really help you later when we start to talk about what centers you'll be putting in your classroom. 
So the next stage of brainstorming is going over some big topics related to your classroom setup. When I do this in a full day PD, I call it 20 questions, but I've summarized it into a way shorter list of questions for today. But this is basically just hitting on some of the big, important, and influential topics that will affect how your classroom runs on a day-to-day basis. You don't need to have an answer or a plan yet for each of these areas, but you want to start to get that process going of how you will be setting this area up or how you will be implementing this part of your classroom. So the first thing to think about here is the adults in your room. So how many adults do you have? Not how many adults should you have, but how many adults will you have in your classroom on a daily basis? How many classroom assistants? How many paraprofessionals? Are any of those paraprofessionals dedicated paraprofessionals, meaning a one-on-one paraprofessional? If you have a one-on-one paraprofessional, that paraprofessional should be with that child all the time. You cannot misuse the way that staff is placed in your room because mom or dad or a previous teacher and likely a lawyer or an advocate fought very hard to make sure that that staff member is with that child. And I know sometimes when you review the IEPs and the needs of your students, it seems maybe ironic that the child that needs a one-on-one isn't the one that has it. And another child that you think, oh man, this kid doesn't really seem like maybe he needs a dedicated staff person does have one. It's not your decision to make right now. Right now, you have to follow what that legal document, that legal IEP says. So look at your staffing. Write down, even if you know it, I know it seems silly, but write down, I have two paraprofessionals. I have one paraprofessional that's dedicated for Sarah. Write that down right now to start to get that plan. Next, look at how many students you have. And you have that snapshot list of IEP needs already, so that'll be a quick answer you can write down. I've got nine kids. I've got 11 kids. And then start to think about how you can group your students together. So that's why that quick list of IEP goals is really important because it's going to give you an idea of what kids have similar academic, communicative, and behavioral needs. So you'll be able to see which kids could work together on similar goals. Maybe several students are reading at a similar level or working on some of the same math concepts. We want to be efficient. We want to group kids that are similar so we can provide instruction at one level to more than one child, right? We Most of us maybe don't have a staff member for every single child, and the skill of working and learning together is hugely important. So group work is great. So see where you can start to develop those groups. Remember with everything we do here, this is going to be a rough draft because you might be getting some new kids to you or you're going to a new classroom and you're like, wow, these groups look perfect. These three kids are on the same level. These two kids are on the same level and these three kids are on the same level. How beautiful. Well, First of all, that rarely happens so nicely. And if it does, you know there's probably a catch. So there might be some kids that have very similar academic needs, but maybe behaviorally are very different. So we'll talk about that in some of the other steps when we get to some of the behavior portions. But you don't want to pair kids together that have conflicting behavioral needs. So if one student is very triggered by loud noises and another student constantly makes loud noise, 
it seems tempting to put them in the same group when they have very similar IEP goals, but I promise you it's not going to work out like how you think. That might be a goal to work towards, but don't start the year with that conflict right there ready to go. So start to group your students together. So we've got the adults. We've got the students. Now let's switch gears and start to think of the structure of your classroom. So a few bullet points that we have to have. Independent work. And if you could see me right now, I'm quoting independent. Just because your kids can't work independently now doesn't mean they won't by the end of the year. So you should have some area of your room, which we'll talk about more in the next section, for independent work. So start to think about what that looks like. Then think about student desks and student materials. Where are your kids keeping their stuff, their pencils, their notebooks, their scissors? Will you have a desk for every student? You don't need to. My first year, I put a desk for every student because I thought that's what you had to do. And then I realized that half of my classroom was taken up with student desks that we rarely sat at. And I had a big classroom. So that means I was really taking up a lot of real estate. And I soon realized that that wasn't helpful for us. We needed all of the space because we needed to have a lot of different types of centers. So this is going to be where the reflection piece starts to become really important. So think about how your classroom was set up last year. Where did your students keep their stuff? Did that work? Did that not work? Was there something problematic about that? Was the open bins of, hey, everyone come get stuff when you need it? Was that a hot mess and things were spilling and kids were getting lost going to and from that area? Then don't set it up that way. So reflect back on what worked and didn't work related to where your students are sitting, their desks, and how they access materials. So we've talked about student materials. Now let's switch gears and talk about teacher materials. There's a lot that goes into this. There's paperwork, there's data, there's extra resources, there's extra materials. You know, at the start of the year, you have like 706 glue sticks. You shouldn't put 706 glue sticks out in August. You should pack up most of them and only put out what you need. In our classrooms, we tend to have a lot of stuff. Because when you're teaching such a wide span of needs, you're going to have a lot of materials. You might be having some kids that are working on color identification and other kids that are working on division. So imagine all of the materials in between that you're going to need. Organization is so, so, so key here. And I mean all of those so's. I just needed all of them in there. Because there is no point in spending time and money making all of these materials if you can't find them when you need them. You need an organized classroom, not because it's pretty and it looks nice for Pinterest. It's because we have so much stuff in our rooms that if it's not organized, it simply won't function. I don't mean organization that's color-coded and printed and labeled. You just need a system for putting things away and finding them. You can label things with masking tape, with Post-its. The bins don't have to match. I don't care. But everything needs a home, and you need to be able to put something away and find it when you need it. So think about all your stuff. Where is it going? You should only have out in your classroom 
what you need for that month or that quarter. If no one in your classroom right now is working on division, there should not be a division center or division worksheets out in your class. Store them in a bin, store them in a closet, put them away somewhere. I know everyone's saying, well, I don't have a closet. That's okay. Buy those big Tupperware bins, load up materials that you're not using right now, label what's in there, and put them in one corner of the classroom. You want to eliminate having lots of extra stuff because that can get chaotic quickly. When I walk into a classroom that feels jam-packed with stuff everywhere, me as an adult feels overwhelmed. So how do you think our kids feel? We want them to focus on their schedule and on their visuals and on their anchor charts and their teachers. It's distracting when there's too much stuff. So spend time thinking about your classroom last year. What worked with this? What didn't work with this? When you packed up your classroom at the end of the year, did you find resources that you hadn't used the whole year that you totally could have? We've all been there. You pull open a bin and you're like, oh my gosh, I forgot I made these file folders or I forgot I made these adorable spring-themed work tasks. I could have used these a month ago. And it's frustrating because we want to be efficient and we don't want to waste time. So you need good systems for organizing your resources and materials. And those extra school supplies, like I mentioned with those 700 glue sticks, you don't want to be asking mom and dad three months into the school year to send new stuff in. So pack a lot of it up and make sure that we're slowly putting out new things and we can ration it throughout the year. So next thing to think about related to the needs of your students is to highlight any specific or high needs students. So when we did that quick snapshot from the IEP, you likely noted anything really important that might affect your daily school and classroom life related to behavior. So this is something to think about in your classroom setup process. And we'll talk a lot more about this in step number two, classroom structure. But note, do you have students that are aggressive? Do you have students that have a history of running? Do you have students that need one-on-one support or a de-escalation area? This will affect how you set up your classroom. If you have students that have a history of aggression or escalating to high behaviors, your break area or play area might also need to be used as a safe space. So if it needs to be used like that, You don't want to have big metal file cabinets near that area. You maybe don't want to store heavy, large toys in that area. Believe me, I have run into this problem and learned it the hard way when I had an Etch-A-Sketch to the head, which really hurt. I learned that if I'm using my play area as a safe space while a child is de-escalating, I shouldn't be keeping heavy toys in there that they can throw. And yes... I do very much regret that. So think about that. For your runners, and we'll talk a lot more about this in step two, their schedule shouldn't be right by the door. I ran across this issue with a teacher I was consulting with about a year ago. She had a student with really high frequency running, would sprint out the door, and she was a great teacher at a great classroom. But sometimes when you're all the way in it, 
you don't see the really obvious solutions. So when I walked in and saw that the schedules were stored right next to the door and this child, every time he checked his schedule, which was about 25 times throughout the day, was right next to that door that he wanted to run out of, it seemed super obvious to me, hey, why don't we move Johnny's schedule? And the teacher was like, oh my gosh, how could I not have thought about that? I just always put the schedules there. So you want to question these decisions for your runners. Why are, are they sitting too near the door for certain subjects? How are, where are they working throughout your day? And like I said, we'll get a lot more into the specifics of that in step two. Think about what technology you have. Technology is important and technology is expensive. So we want to be making sure to take care of the technology we get. If you have iPads, where are you storing them? There is no panic like the panic of a teacher who thinks they have lost a classroom iPad. I have also been there. Make sure there's specific spots for where iPads go so you don't run into that. Where is it locked during the school night when you leave? Where's the smart board? Where are computers? How are you getting all of the technology that you are entitled to? Is your classroom supposed to get iPads, but they never did? Figure out a plan to advocate for your class and email your principal in the summer to get that ball rolling. Next, think about for the classroom process setup, think about budget. I know. This is probably something we have never thought about. Setting up a whole classroom can be really expensive. My first year teaching, I walked into an empty room. I wasn't taking over a teacher's room that left. They were bringing a whole new class of kids to this school. So when I walked in, there were empty tables and empty shelves, and that's it. It was absolutely terrifying. I kept thinking, when is the stuff coming? There wasn't any stuff. And... You know and I know that stuff never came. I was expected to make or supply all of that stuff myself. And I spent way too much money my first year. And I was 22 years old. I had a new apartment. I barely had enough money to get groceries. And I'm not exaggerating because I spent too much money on my classroom. I should have set a budget and I should have tackled one section at a time and gotten creative with recycling things and donors choose, which I learned about later, but I didn't know right away. So are you going to have a budget for yourself? Think about that now. The last brainstorming question is how are you keeping things age appropriate? This is a great reflective question for teachers that are going back to their same classroom. Sometimes we lose touch with what the needs are of our students' general education peers. If you feel like this might be the case, then pop into another classroom of the same grade level you teach. If you teach first through fourth grade, go into a second grade room, go into a third grade room, go into that fourth grade room, see what those rooms look like, what's on the walls, what toys are in the play center, what's on the tables. If you are junior high, high school, this is even more important for you. Go into that eighth grade class. Go into that sophomore English homeroom. See what it looks like. Your classroom doesn't have to look exactly like theirs, but it's important to know what those classrooms look like because that's what you're moving towards. And you want to make sure to keep things age appropriate. And I could 
easily do a whole podcast episode on this, and I probably should because I have a lot to say on this topic. But for older kids especially, you can still work on foundational level skills with materials and content that is appropriate for a 15-year-old. So that's important to note. I will link some blog posts on this topic because I don't want to let myself go on a tangent. So those are just some topics to get you started brainstorming. So from the needs of your students, from student materials, teacher materials, um, looking at technology, looking at budgets, starting to get an idea of the status of your classroom. What do you have? What do you need? What do you know? What do you need to know? So the last step of this brainstorming step, I know we're in lists of lists. It's, it's getting crazy. But the last thing to think about is what centers you will have in your classroom. And I kind of break up the types of centers you'll have in your classroom into about four or five categories. So one type of center will be some type of group center. So this is your circle time, your morning meeting, your group work, your cooking. So some space in your class where you can work with possibly your whole class or larger groups of your class on activities that it's imperative to have student involvement. So things like cooking or game time where students will be working together. So what centers will you have under group center category? So list that right there. So group centers, maybe you need a circle time and you need a group table. So list that out. The next type of center is a direct instruction center. So this is mostly focused around you, the teacher. Where will you be doing assessments? Where will you be doing guided reading group? Where will you be teaching IEP goals that need that one-on-one or one-to-small-group setting? So you need some area of your class that you can have access to materials easily. Maybe it's like a little bit isolated so students can really focus where you can build on new skills. You can do assessments. You can work in small groups or one-on-one with students. The next type of center is paraprofessional-led centers. Yes, this needs its own category because that's how important it is. I am super, super passionate If you know me and you've been listening to this podcast, you know this already. I am super passionate about about using our staff and our paraprofessionals as educators in our classroom. You cannot teach all of the IEP goals yourself. You cannot take all of the data yourself. Your staff is there to help you. If you are only using your paraprofessionals for redoing task boxes and taking kids to the bathroom, you are not utilizing them to their full potential. And spoiler alert, they are probably really bored. So make your paraprofessionals teachers. Give them real responsibilities. With great staff training, they will rise to the occasion. So some great paraprofessional-led centers can be a fluency instruction, can be independent, working towards independent work, um, working on IEP goals, core academic areas, science or social studies. If you always forget about those, those can be great paraprofessional-led centers. Fine motor skills, writing. There's a lot that you can do in small groups or one-on-one that your staff can be running for you. The next time of center is your independent work centers. And just like I said, this is with quotes. Even if you're preschool and your babies cannot yet work independently, that's okay. 
You're working towards that. They can't work independently yet. So you need some type of independent center. Likely, you need multiple independent centers. Independent work is not synonymous with task boxes. It can be task boxes, but other great independent activities are leisure activities, things like drawing or art, um, different academic focus centers, like maybe reading centers or centers where you rotate around the room. Technology can be an independent area, life skills. Um, there's a lot of different ways to have independent activities that are beyond just a work box. So the last type of center is kind of a hybrid with independent work. The last one is leisure. So these might be things that are done with staff or with students alone. So it could be independent and you can add in that structure so students can do leisure activities without you there in a purposeful and effective way. So some leisure activities might just be a break time or a play time, but other things with a little more structured could be a quiet reading, could be a game activity. My One of my years teaching, we had a game center that a group of students went to every single day and it was one of the most fun centers to watch. And I say watch because I didn't participate. It was five kids that went to a game center every day and every day of the week, a different kid was in charge. So Monday, Johnny was in charge. Tuesday, Sarah was in charge and they got to pick the game and they got to run it. We added in structure. We talked about visuals. I modeled the right way for them to do it. I didn't just let them free and see how it went. It was a taught center that I then faded out adult support and It was so amazing when an administrator would walk in and see five students playing a game together and cooperating and playing collaboratively. It was just so amazing. And that was their independence center. And they were working on so many great skills while playing a game. So think beyond task boxes because you might need several independent centers. So if it feels like this episode has been a little bit all over the place, that's because that's how brainstorming goes. You're starting to organize all of these ideas you have. And whether you're going to a new classroom and you're just excited to jump in and get all of these ideas going, or you've been in the same class and you want to switch up some things last year and make some things better, this is the process of getting everything down on paper. So the three major things that we talked about, we talked about reviewing those IEPs, getting to know the needs of those students, making that quick snapshot of your students' needs, the IEP goals, and the major noteworthy points. Next were those brainstorming questions, looking at listing out your students, looking at where student materials are going, thinking about budget and technology. So starting to hit those big topics related to your classroom setup and starting to think through how you want to proceed. And then last was starting to list out your centers. So you looked at those IEP goals and you started to think of ways you could address those IEP goals. So now you're making a list of centers to work on all of those IEP goals. And we looked at a few different categories of types of centers you have in your classroom. And I didn't note this, but I know a center, a center-based classroom is so important because when the needs of our kids are very, very different, whole group instruction might not always be an option. We want to meet our students with where they're at and be able to really individualize their instruction. So when you have kids that are maybe working on very, very different concepts or are several grade levels apart, you don't want to group them together because that's easier. 
Because first of all, it's not. And second of all, you're not going to be able to meet their needs effectively. So work on building groups of students that have similar needs and meeting them where they're at. You want to work towards group instruction. That's what their peers are doing in the gen ed. That's somewhere you're getting towards. It's okay that you're not there right now. So this idea of a center-based classroom is essential because you'll be able to individualize for all of your kids. So this was step one of our seven steps for setting up a stellar classroom. So this was the planning. This might seem like something you don't have to do if you're a veteran teacher, but trust me, no matter how long you've been teaching, it just takes one kid or one group of kids to knock you right back to year one. This job is never boring because the needs of our kids are always changing. So how our classroom looks and how our classroom is set up should always be changing too. If you would have told me a few years ago that my favorite part of my job is getting up in front of sometimes a few hundred people and giving a presentation on data or behavior academics, I would have thought you were crazy. I did not always like public speaking. Actually, to be totally honest, public speaking was something I used to be pretty afraid of. But now it's literally my favorite part of my job. I love being in a room of my people, of the special ed world, teachers and parents and clinicians, and everyone that's on the front lines that's working so hard for our students to give them the best opportunities and the best classroom experience. I love being in a room of everyone that understands how hard this job can be, but also how amazing it is and how important those little victories are on a daily basis. When I do a PD, my goal is to bring value. I want to bring action items, ideas and strategies that you can do tomorrow in your classroom. I have sat through too many professional developments that either didn't apply to me or were too hypothetical and philosophical. And my special ed heart always wanted to know, what do I do next? What do I do tomorrow? If you are interested in learning more about how I can come to your school to do a professional development, please visit theautismhelper.com backslash speaking. There's a contact form as well as a lot of information about all of the different sessions I give. I'm happy to answer any questions and work with your school district. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.